0: Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist Church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, we're going to read 14 to 23 again, looking at this third point. Well, we were able to get uh, Caleb and Whitney joined in covenant yesterday at the wedding and had a good time uh, celebrating and dancing the night away and such last night, which is always good. I always remember uh, Jesus's first miracle participating in the, the wedding ceremony and rejoicing in the delight of the people in the, in the wedding and such. It was a good time. I can see many of you have not yet recovered from dancing the night away, looking on some sleepy faces. Uh, The others have been hit with the uh, pollen demons, it looks like. Uh, So uh, I will try to make the abstract thinking that is going to be involved in Romans 9 as exciting as possible, but I need you to lean in and and work hard to fight for these next uh, couple hours we're going to spend. It's Romans 9. Beginning in verse 14, let's read the text and ask for God's help. So beginning in verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Y- y- you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we come and we ask that you'll have mercy on us. We humble ourselves right now. You are the great and sovereign one. We see your word declaring that all things that you have ordained will come about. We we submit ourselves to your will and pray your will be done. We see your word teach that the only reason why Any of us have eternal life is because you brought this about. You chose to look on us with with grace when you could have sentenced us to hell. We thank you for your mercy. We we, we are going to sing your praises forever and ever. We are going to glory in our salvation through eternity and never grow tired, never grow ungrateful. And we long to understand that more now. So Lord, we pray that you will come. We are thinking on difficult matters. We're we're, we're having to think deeply and think through complex things that your word teaches. But we don't want to run away from those things. We we want to see your glory. So help us, God, we pray. I ask that you give your spirit. Uh, I ask God you protect this and bless this time Lord, even the practical matters of us being able to pay attention and, and, and think deeply in the physical side, please help. Ask God that you bless our minds to be able to comprehend. And, and then the greater work, the work that we can never do in our own strength, God, that you will open our eyes so that the truth brings tr- transformation, that the truth awakens, quickens, sanctifies does your work, oh God. So please bring that about. I ask God, help me uh, to, to teach, help, help set a guard over my lips that I not speak falsehood or any, any kind of sin that could come out of my lips. But help me to teach truth and feed your people. And Lord, I pray that all of us will worship as we receive and believe, oh God. So please send your spirit and give grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The prophet Jonah was called by God Uh, to go to the city of Nineveh and to preach the message that God had given him. He was given this message of a warning of judgment to come, that if they did not turn, there was wrath of God going to come on their city. And I'm sure you remember Jonah's reaction. Rather than march in the direction that God told him to go, Jonah literally turned to flee the opposite direction and to get on a vessel heading as far away as possible from where God had told him to go. Um, now, I, I, I believe that God means in that also for there to be some illustration for us to use to understand us in our sinful condition. A condition in which we, we do not go the direction that God calls us to that left our own devices. We, we go the exact opposite and even want to go as far away as possible in that direction. But throughout the course of the event, we see God work to change Jonah's mind, might be a nice way for us to say it. God works circumstances so that Jonah would rethink the direction and the decisions that he had made. You know, the book of Jonah is very short. Uh, Chapter one is mostly about God coming and calling Jonah. Chapter two is Jonah deciding to go the opposite direction that God told him to go. And, chapter, and, then, and then God bringing about the circumstances, God hurling a storm. And then, of course, the part about Jonah that everybody remembers, uh, Jonah going into the water and then uh, being swallowed and going into the, the belly of a sea creature. And it's, it's there in the belly of the sea creature that Jonah changed his mind. Jonah repented. And chapter three of Jonah is all about Jonah's prayer of the changing of his mind, him humbling himself before God, relenting, uh, turning. And then chapter four is Jonah following through on his repentance. But as, as we think about what happened there, let me ask this question for your consideration to help us understand what's happening here in Romans nine. Did Jonah choose to go to Nineveh? The answer is, of course he did. But the next question would be, but was Jonah's will the only will that was working? Was Jonah's choice the only choice that was leading and determining what was going to happen there? I mean, we see, obviously, the Bible show there was another will at work. The will of God preceded the will of Jonah, God came and changed Jonah's mind. When when we look at the text there, we see that there are uh, physical ways, physical things of the earth, that circumstances that God worked in order to change his mind. We see the Bible also show that God works on and in hearts when he is turning people to go a particular direction. So in both physical and spiritual ways, visible and invisible ways, God was at work to turn Jonah to go a certain direction. Now listen, Jonah did choose to go to Nineveh. Why did he go there? He did choose. That's a biblical answer. But a fuller answer is that in the will of God, God chose that Jonah was going to go to Nineveh. He just didn't know it yet. And one way or the other, God was going to work circumstances and internal things so that Jonah's desire would be turned. And we see this kind of thing all through the Bible. We see it all through the Bible various times that God's will is at work in drawing and shifting and leading the will of others. We see it in the calling of the prophets. God would come to prophets and say, I have chosen you to go and do this work. We see it. Remember with uh, Jesus saying to the apostles, you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you. The will of God precedes man's will when it comes to uh, any kind of choice that leads to salvation or accomplishing the work of the kingdom of God. And ultimately what that means is that God is the one who gets all of the glory. God doesn't just get most of the glory. God doesn't just get 99.99% of the glory. He gets all of the glory because the ultimate cause was the leading of God. And we see this very subject going on in Romans 9 here. But what we're being told is that um, not just in uh, a man going to a city or the calling of a prophet or the calling of the apostles, but in every individual who is saved, This same kind of work that God did with Jonah happens inside of us. We were marching away from God. God chose in grace to come and pursue and draw and work in visible and invisible ways so that our minds would be changed and we would want God. So why for you who are in Christ, so I'm speaking to you that have understood the message of the gospel, that you must be saved. Uh, you, are, you, are, you, you, you need to receive the gift of what Jesus has done. If I ask the question, why were you saved? It is a right and biblical answer to say, because I wanted to. That is a biblical answer, but it's not the fullest answer. Because the fullest answer is where the Bible is showing us what's happening behind the scenes. God came to you. God pursued you. The will of God preceded your will and God worked in order to turn you to where you would want him. And so we see this being discussed here in Romans nine. So here's how we're going to study this morning. Last week, we did an overview of point number three. It begins in verse 14 by asking the question, this work where God predestines, God ordained history. And part of that is ordained who would turn to Christ and therefore have eternal life is this unrighteous? Because oftentimes that's man's first reaction. Wait a second, that's not fair. It's not supposed to go this way. And so we saw the text show five answers to the question showing it is righteous for God to do what he has the sovereignty and the freedom to do. Now we're going to uh, walk through the text a, a bit slower and uh, make sure that we see everything that is in there. So we're gonna look at the next two subpoints. Uh, this week, so it's, we're still in point number three, and the next two subpoints are going to be we're ready for letter B, which is I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and then we'll come to letter C that it is not by the will of man. So let's begin with B. You look there in verse 15. Re- read along with me again. For he says to Moses, now you have. Uh, your Bible is probably indicating that there's a quote from the Old Testament here. It might be all capitalized, set apart in some way, showing you this comes from the Old Testament. Exodus 33:19. 19. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This quote from the Old Testament, Exodus 33, that is the occasion... When Moses was meeting with God and he asked God, show me your glory. And when Paul quoted that passage, one of the things you have to understand, and I think part of the point is that every single Jewish Christian who read that text, so remember the recipients of this letter were were a combination of Jews and Gentile Christians. All of the Jewish Christians immediately recognized the verse. They knew where this came from. They could have told you the story. They were very familiar with the scriptures. And Paul, part of what Paul is calling them to do is, is, is almost like, look, guys, you know this verse. So I've just told you that God predestines. And your heart reacts by saying, wait, 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 is that righteous? And Paul's sort of saying, guys, think back to the Old Testament with me. You remember this passage, Exodus 33, when Moses prayed, God, show me your glory. And you remember what God said, but have you ever paused to deeply consider what it means? God said, even back then, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, meaning I will have mercy on who I choose to have mercy. And I will have compassion on who I choose to have compassion. Remember, none of us deserve it. We're all going the way of Jonah, marching away from what God has told us. It would be our life. God does not have to go after us. God did not have to go after Jonah. He could have let Jonah keep marching to his own destruction, living in disobedience to God and then eventually dying and entering hell. God came and brought Jonah to repentance, first and foremost, for his own soul's salvation, and then also leading him to obedience And so what Paul is doing is saying this verse all the way back in Exodus 33 was teaching God's sovereignty and God's freedom to give grace to whoever he chooses to give grace to. He's under no obligation to give it to anyone. And so consider consider more of what this means and where the point of the text is leading us. All right, so here's some of this abstract thinking that I told you we were gonna need to do. If God did not predestine, Okay, so we're entering a fantasy world here, a world that does not exist. Okay, but just imagine with me, if God did not predestine who would be saved, and here's the second thing, salvation came by works, the doing of good deeds and and your own goodness. So if it came by those two things, then salvation would come by man's work and man's will. So if God did not predestine and salvation came by your own goodness, then what that would mean is anybody who got saved. Now we know the Bible teaches us we're fantasy world here because no one would, no one would be saved unless God did it like this. But in the fantasy world, if if God did not predestine, it was God just passively waited and it was up to humans to work their way into heaven. Then anybody who did make it there, they got there by their own works and by their own will. So there's one scenario. Now think about the next scenario. If God did not predestine, but salvation came by faith. So this is what many believe. If God did not predestine and salvation came by faith. Now let me pause there for just a second to remind you of important truth we studied back in Romans 4. Back in Romans 4, 16, the whole chapter is about salvation comes by faith. The moment you place your faith in the Lord Jesus, this is the moment that you are saved, not by works. That is a misunderstanding. Romans four sixteen said this, for this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. In other words, the whole reason why God ordered it this way, God could have made salvation come in, in all kinds of different ways. Okay. But he designed it like this in order that he would get the glory in order that it would not be up to the work, the power, the goodness of mankind, he ordered it to come by grace, by a gift. Because remember, faith is the opposite of a work. Okay. Faith is Faith is not some work that you go do. The whole point of faith is we could not do enough good works to make it into heaven. Jesus did the work that was needed. Uh, faith is receiving. Faith is trusting in what somebody else did. Okay, so you got an extension cord. There's a male end and a female end. Faith is the female end. Faith is the receiving of the work of another, namely the Lord Jesus. And God designed it like this so that he would be glorified as he gave grace. So let's come back to the scenario here. If God did not predestine, but he ordered it that salvation would come by faith, then anybody who got saved in fantasy world, because it wouldn't happen, but anybody who did get saved, who made it to eternal life, they got their mostly by God's grace because it came by faith. So they did not get there by their own works, but they did get there by their own will. It was not by their works, but it was by their will. But what we see Romans 9 and other places in the Bible showing us is this. The reality of the world is that God did predestine and he made salvation to come by faith. So, you know, All who make it to eternal life, all who are uh, saved, we are saved not by man's work and not by man's will. We're saved by God's work and God's will. It does not depend on man who wills or man who runs. This is the point of what Romans 9 is showing. It's showing that when it comes to when you think of your salvation, how much credit do you give to God and how much do you give to yourself? Because if God did not predestine, but he made salvation to come by faith, well, then in our minds, we'll think, well, you know, God, he's awesome. He gets 99.9999% of the glory. But that 0.0001, it's mine because I chose to turn. I chose to believe. And what Romans 9 is saying is you, do, you don't even get the 0.0001%. God gets all of the credit because when you turn to be saved, yes, like Jonah, you did choose it. You did. But there was work of God that was preceding even your work, wooing you, drawing you, and turning you. So, one of the connections I want you to see, and this is a really important one do you see that predestination and salvation by faith, they're friends, they're allies? Because they both come out of the same treasure chest. And the treasure chest is called the grace of God. Both of these are how it is that it is all of grace. You are involved in choosing. You are involved in the work. You turned to Jesus because you wanted to. That is a true statement. But there, your will was not the ultimate determining factor of whether or not you would be saved because it did not ultimately depend on your choice or your faith. The ultimate determining factor was the choice of God. He called you to himself, worked a supernatural work. Now I say that to you who are in Christ. So um, if you have never turned to Christ to be saved, then, then you are now outside of this and need to be born again, need to turn to Christ But again and again, we see scripture showing that ultimately it is God who is the one who causes salvation. It'll say it in lots of different ways. You know, if you're going to study this, it's not just the verses that talk about predestination, election, uh, God's choice, God's sovereignty, or some of those key phrases. It's, it's stated in a lot of different ways. So, for instance, 2 uh, Timothy one9 I'll read to you. Uh, speaking of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose. Which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. That verse didn't use the word predestination or election or ordination for ordination, any of those things. But what it is showing is that God ultimately is the one who brought it about. God is the one who caused it. There's another helpful place in Ezra 1. In Ezra chapter one, you have the scenario that went down. This is when Israel, Judah, had been taken off into exile. They'd been there for 70 years. And God did something just absolutely miraculous. He turned the heart of a king to want to rebuild the temple, King Cyrus of Persia, which is a pretty big feat in itself, okay? Because even when you read some uh, uh, history outside of the Bible, Cyrus was a bad dude. God took a bad dude, infamous in history for doing bad stuff, And made him want to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem so those people would pray for him. That's pretty phenomenal. That's pretty phenomenal in itself. But that's not even the part that we're getting at here. God turned the heart of Cyrus to want the temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And he uh, announced to all of the Jews who had been living in the Persian kingdom. This is a lot by now. You are free and we will even help you travel back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. An invitation was given. You're free. Go on back. At that announcement, what what should have been the reaction of all of those living there in Persia? It should have been dancing up and down, rejoicing, weeping in gratitude. God worked this miracle that this evil king is not only letting us, he's going to help us go back there. But one of the things we see in Ezra 1 is that the majority did not go. The majority, they heard the invitation, but they did not want to go back to Jerusalem. Kind of like, as the world hears the message of the gospel, there should be dancing up and down and rejoicing that God has made a way for us to be made right with him. But the majority do not turn to Christ. There was a remnant of the Jews who traveled back to Jerusalem and Ezra chapter 1 verse 5 says this, then the heads of fathers households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord. So did you catch that part? Who went to Jerusalem? Who left Persia to go rebuild the temple? It is a correct answer to say the people who wanted to. There's nothing wrong with that answer. But the Bible is always showing us, here's the bigger picture in the heavenly realm. The fuller answer, did you catch it? Everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house. We, we see Romans 9 teaching that God does the same thing when it comes to salvation. Who turns to Christ to be saved? It's a right answer to save those who want to. But the the fuller answer that we are being shown is God stirs, God awakens a group that is called the elect. Uh, One more passage, and if you will flip there with me, John chapter one for a second. John chapter one. And we're going to hang there for just a bit. So John chapter one, find verse 11. Consider this. He, that is Jesus, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now, verse 13 is still describing that group of people who believe and receive. So here's another way that they are described. Who were born not of blood. So we ain't talking about your, your birth from your mama's womb. We're talking about a different birth here. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you see what that is saying about the new birth? It's an extremely important clarification to make. How does the new birth, okay, so that's its own miracle that is a part of salvation. The new birth is when you are awakened, The new birth is when you come from death to life. The word regeneration in the Bible is also applied to this right here. The new birth is a miracle, a part of salvation. The new birth, how does it come? Did it come as a response to your will or does it come as a response to God's will? Well, you see what the text is saying here, but the the difference is very critical Because here is a question that is um, connected. To this whole discussion about, so amongst Christians, we wish we all got along. We will one day. Rejoice in that. We'll all get along one day and we'll all believe the same things. Everybody will be Baptist. Okay. Uh, we'll all get along. We'll all believe the same thing. Okay, um, and, and and so this whole debate that Christians have amongst one another of, did God predestine souls to be saved or did he not? You know, is unconditional election, you know, the truth or, or, or not? Christians have this debate. Well, amongst a part of that discussion is this right here, the new birth. Does the new birth come as a reaction to believers believing the sinner who believes for the first time? Does the new birth come at the moment they believe as a response or does the new birth precede faith? Do you see the difference there? Because the difference is all about who does it, who does it? Well, you saw John one there say that the new birth does not come by the will of man but by the will of God. But now flip over to John three for a second. Like I just got goosebumps just thinking about the verse I'm going to read to you. Okay. John three, find verse three, John three, three, Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay. So there's the context, the discussion with Nicodemus, the new birth, but now jump down to verse six, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit, the Holy Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Huh. The discussion is over. Does the new birth precede faith or come after? The, the debate is over. The wind blows where it wishes. The spirit of God moves to stir and awaken souls to faith amongst whoever he wants. And so what that means is you came to life not because you believed. You came to life because the spirit of God had grace on you. God moved his spirit to come and you were awakened. Now there's more we're going to talk about that happens in the new birth, the opening of the eyes. But you need to see you didn't cause your life and it did not ultimately come from your will. It came from the will of God, which preceded your will. God worked a work. This is the, when the Bible talks about the calling, that's also connected with the new birth, the calling, that effectual calling. God called you to himself in awakening you to life. And you, for the first time, that moment, when you and I came to our senses and we realized, what am I doing? I need Jesus. That moment, that's when God awakens you. And what the Bible is saying is the Spirit moves where He wishes. Well, that, that is a, a helpful transition then into this um, third subpoint, letter C, which is not by the will of man. Let's go back to Romans nine and look at verse seventeen. Excuse me, verse sixteen. Sixteen. So then, it. What's the it there? Salvation. Salvation. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. I want to talk for a bit about the will, the will. So here's more of that abstract stuff we said we were going to do. And I'm going to, I'm going to address it with two questions. Two questions for today as we, as we try to understand how does the will of God and my will, how does this all work together and fit with predestination? Which by the way, Christians have been talking about this. Well, obviously since the book of Romans was written. Okay. And then stretching into the old Testament, Christians have been wrestling with this kind of thing. And, and part, part of, part of what we need to see is we're given some of these things in order to understand the world. You cannot have a discussion on the meaning of life and what am I to do and why evil and how do we respond to evil? Like the big questions of life, you cannot understand them unless you come to some kind of conviction on what you believe about God's sovereignty over history and how it all works together. So what the Bible is giving you is the reality of how these things work. So, I'm gonna gonna, gonna address this in two questions. First, I'm just gonna ask, what is man's will? What What is the will? Like, what are we referring to when we say man's will and free will and things like this? And then, secondly, we're gonna ask the question, do we have free will? So, here's question number one What is the will? Your will is that part of you that chooses, that makes decisions. When we talk about the volition, we're talking about the will. And one of the things we always have to be careful about anytime we define a word, we have to ask the question Does my definition in my head match how the Bible uses this word? Okay? Because with words like hope, we see that there's, there's a big disconnect between how modern language uses hope and how the Bible uses the word hope, things like that. The word will, when, when we read how it's used in the Bible, it does match this definition. It's, it's determined the choice. How are decisions made? what you decide to do, that's that's your will. And that is also addressing God's will. So how does the will work? What kinds of factors are connected? Are are our wills influenced in that we make choices? The answer is obviously yes. Literally thousands of factors influence the choices that we make. All all, all kinds of things like, you know, I joked last week, like even if you had coffee this morning, can affect. Have you ever been tired and stressed out and made a poor decision that you're pretty sure you wouldn't have made had you been, you know, perky and alert? Of course. Your upbringing and the household you were raised in, the nurture, the environment has a lot to do with choices that we make um, and then one that we're all the time talking about is what you believe determines the decisions that you make. Uh, for you who have children, uh, the, the 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 decisions you will make about public school, Christian school, homeschool—that's based on what you believe. What you believe drives those kinds of things. I mean, all the way down to what TV shows will you watch or not watch comes down to what you believe. And then you may have beliefs that form convictions, but then one day you're just tempted and you fall to temptation. And then you give in and you watch a show that you may not have normally watched. Like there are just 10,000, I'm not exaggerating to say, thousands upon thousands of decisions and factors that influence our decisions. It is complicated. And so I don't think it's hard for us to imagine how it is that God can influence us. And Romans nine is getting us to understand the starting point, the ultimate cause, because understand there are causes and then there are, there is an ultimate cause. If you uh, take a hammer and use it, yeah, you nail a a board onto a wall. Okay. How did it work? Philosophically, you can ask the question, what caused the hammer to drive the nail? A, A correct answer would be your hand. That's a cause. But that's not the ultimate cause. You know, your brain was sending messages to your hand. Why did your brain send messages to there? hand? Because you made a decision. Why did you make that decision? Because a female companion in your house named Wifey told you she wanted it up there. <laughs> Why did she want that? Because she'd been watching the DIY network, which is always trouble, okay? Wait, you understand where we're going with this. There are causes, but not all the causes are the ultimate cause. Romans 9 is showing us the ultimate cause of salvation, the ultimate cause. We make choices based on a variety of different factors and influences, and I need you to catch this. This is philosophical, this is abstract thinking, okay? It's all in the text, okay? But the choice is the effect and not the root. Does that make sense? Because a lot of philosophers from history got that wrong. That The Bible is showing you here's how humans really are, and philosophers from history really got it wrong. The the will is not the bottom root. The will is influenced by other things down deeper in there. So what would be the other things down deeper in there? Well, I mean, we mentioned a bunch of things, but what would be the deepest root if we were going to talk about what is the deepest root of man? It's the heart. That's what the Bible reveals. The Bible reveals that the heart of man is the deepest root. Root, you know, all kinds of passages. I'm sure you already believe me, but Romans 4, 23, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Proverbs, again, a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. You see the direction we're flowing here inward to the outward. Uh, What Jesus taught when he said for from within out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts That one's an important one. The evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander. Did you catch the envy one? That's that's something that happens internally as well. Pride and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Now, there's actually quite a bit of big stuff that is involved in that. For one, Jesus is showing that the heart, that's the root. That's the core of who we are. Secondly, we see the direction of the flow, that that what is in the heart determines what comes out. Now, now, a a little by the way, that's not to say that there aren't things that influence the heart, because there are, okay? And that's also going to come up in what we discuss. If you constantly watch nothing but trash TV shows, that that will influence your heart, and then out of the heart (laughs) Come other things there. But thirdly, notice specifically that evil thoughts come out of the heart. This is really critical. Modern man wants to believe in our, in our, you know, naturalistic age that has, that has wants to believe that science has every answer. Modern man wants to think that humans are driven by logic and we're not. I mean, I think 10 year olds can look at the world and history and see we are very often illogical. We are not driven by pure logic. We should be driven by truth, reason, and the working out of reason and logic, but we're not. We make choices that are idiotic and we know they're idiotic. We decide to do things that even before we do them, we know it ain't gonna turn out well. That's basically all sin, by the way. But I mean, there's, there's even some really obvious things, really obvious ways that we make dumb financial decisions and we know we're going to regret it and do it anyway. We're not purely logical. We're driven by the heart and our heart is depraved. Our heart has lust and desires. Jeremiah 17:9 the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick, who can understand it? Our heart influences everything else and our heart is wicked. Our choices are influenced by our hearts and our hearts are corrupted. We why do we do dumb things? Because it's what tastes good. It's because that's what the heart prefers. The heart wants things that are obviously bad for us. Okay, so now here's the second question. Now that we've looked at some of those things, let's ask the second question. Do we have free will? Do we have free will? I'm going to start, we got we to define some terms, okay? Because here's most often what I find. Very often is the case when two people are talking about free will, they mean two very different things. Like I've seen two people arguing over free will and they both believe the same thing, but they didn't know it. Because they're using different definitions for that. There is a, this is, like I said, this is a historical discussion that we've been having for thousands of years. This isn't new, okay? But a lot of times today, when people say we have free will, they mean something different than Boethius did. They mean something different than the way the terms have been defined through history. And that is the source a lot of times of confusion. Okay. So most of the time today, when people say we have free will, what they mean is we have an actual will. We make real choices. We're not robots. We're not puppets. We're not chess pieces being moved. It's it's not like a big video game where God's got the controller up in the sky and we're down here just moving indefinitely, indefinitely probably the wrong word I use there. (laughs) What they mean there is I'm a a real thinking person. I make real choices. And so to that, if somebody says, I believe we have free will and that's their definition, I say, well, you have your terms wrong, but I believe that too. That's what the Bible teaches. Like we almost all agree with that. There are some, there's a rare group out there that believes a kind of fatalism uh, that we we sometimes call hyper-Calvinism. Okay? Fatalism is the idea that you know I'm I'm a robot. I don't even make any of my own choices. I want what I want because God, you know, made me. Okay? That's that's not the, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not how it works. And there's a reason why there aren't a lot of those churches out there. Do you know why? They don't do anything. Okay? Hyper-Calvinism is something that has come up throughout history, and there's a reason why there's not a a church-planting movement of hyper-Calvinists. They don't plant churches. They don't share the gospel with anybody. They don't do anything. They just sit back spiritually lazy and say, all things are predestined, okay? That's wrong. It's not what the Bible teaches. So, here in just a second, I'm going to say we do not have free will, but I don't mean that we're robots and we don't have an actual will. No, we do. We make choices. Let me also as an aside briefly say that very often when Christians first learn the doctrine of election, they think of it in that robotic kind of way. And then sometimes they go tell everybody you should be, you should believe this and this is what it means and they're like, "I hate that." That's you know, and they've been wrongly explained, okay? So, so understand it's, it's usually more complicated than, than the nice, easy, trite answers that we want there to be. God is sovereign and we are responsible for our actions. We are accountable for our actions. We make decisions. It all fits together in ways that God did not reveal how it all fits together. But these are not at odds. The real issue in the question, do I have free will? This is the question. Is my decision making enslaved to anything? Well, when you word it like that, everybody who believes the Bible goes, Well, yeah, duh. We, we just saw that my will is influenced by my heart, and my heart is sick, Jeremiah 17:9, depraved, Genesis 6, 5, and enslaved to sin. Romans 6, 17 to 18. That's the Bible's language, slavery to sin. Remember Genesis 6, 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That kind of sounds like he's trapped. That's what the Bible says. Romans 3, there's none righteous, not even one. There is none who seeks for God. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, so speaking to Christians, it's a past tense. You used to walk according to the prince of the power of the air. You live by the lust of the flesh. And then here's the last part of verse three. And were by nature children of wrath. By nature, this is who we were. And then Romans 16 and 17, you could turn there if, you, if you're not sure you believe me. Because I get it. What I'm saying right now uh, could be kind of controversial. If you're hearing this for the first time, Romans 16 and uh, Romans six. 17 and 18 says that before a Christian is justified, we were slaves to sin. Verse 18 goes on to explain that in Christ, we come under new management. Now that's some more discussion for another time, but there's, there's some new things directing our hearts. Before Christ, we were slaves to sin. And so the will was in bondage along with all the rest of us. Okay. What total depravity means Okay, so that's a a good summarization of the doctrine of sin, total depravity. What it means is not that any of us are as bad as we could be, but that every part of us is touched by the poison of sin, the fallen nature. My fingernails, the molecules in my fingernails have evidence of the fall in them, as well as every part of my spiritual inner man as well. Now, here's the issue with your will. You are free to do what you want. And therein is the problem. So when I say that we do not have free will, there's a lot of misunderstanding that can come, but this is what you need to know. You are free to do what you want. But that's the problem. Our depraved heart wants things that are sinful. We are driven by lust. It's not just that we have occasional lust. So so I'm going to speak of us for a second before Christ and then we'll address what does it look like after Christ, after the new birth and justification, but in the flesh while we are in our sin, we, we don't just have some lust, we are driven by lust. That's what defines us. I live to please myself. I live to chase after money. I live so that I work all things in my life to get this fleshly indulgence that I want. Um, John MacArthur likens it to being incarcerated and you're in a prison cell. You're in a prison cell. Do you have freedom? Well, there's some. You're free to move around. That's different than being chained to the floor. You're in a cell and you can move around and do a lot of different things, but we would never call anybody free. So there are limits of liberty, but we would never call that free. Our heart is enslaved to sinful desires. We do what we want, but we want what is evil. We want things that dishonor God. And so as I say this, you know, if your heart is objecting and And you're thinking, well, this this can't be true. Okay, well, let me show you a definitive way that you can once and for all prove to humanity that we have free will. Do you have free will? Prove it to all of us by stop sinning. Stop sinning and you will prove that man's will is free to do whatever he decides. What that shows is you, you can't. You can't stop sinning And the fact that you can't shows that your will is free. So if I say, prove it, stop sinning, there there could be a a rare group out there that says, okay, I'll do it. Self-righteous and ignorant. Okay, I'll do it. I'll show you guys. Okay, you don't make it out the door before you sin. But the second way that somebody could respond is, well, I could if I wanted to, (laughs) which is always a response of addiction, which by the way, the biblical word there, addiction is not the best word. The biblical word is enslavement. I could stop anytime I wanted to. But that's the problem. We don't want to stop sinning when we are in the flesh. We're Jonah marching away from the will of God and we would just keep going. So where does this leave us? It leaves us in a condition that if God had waited back passively and had not come to anyone to do work of turning us around, we would have all just kept marching towards hell. Unless God would have come to us, we were unable. But when the Bible teaches about the new birth, this calling, how does the Bible describe it? How did Ezekiel describe the new birth? God said, I will give them new hearts. Do you see this? I will give them new hearts. He didn't just say, I'll give them new wills. I'll give them new hearts, not perfect hearts. We're still waiting for that, but new. New which have been liberated in a new way, not complete liberation yet, but liberated from where we were. I will give them new hearts and I will write my law on their hearts. Do you remember this part? Writing the law on our hearts means that we will have desire, desire to obey the law of God. God does a miracle. So I mentioned, you know, in the whole Jonah thing that there are physical and spiritual. God giving new hearts with new desires. That's a spiritual work. We don't even understand all of what's happening. How does he do it? What does it look like in the spiritual world? We don't know. But God works to give a new heart with new desires, a new nature we were by nature children of wrath now there's a new nature that we are given it's not perfect nature that's what we want just like we would like all pain to go away and everything to be nice and cheesy all the way into heaven that's not what God chose God chose to work in stages God chose to give us new hearts but not yet perfect hearts but what that means is is the if the heart is changed and it flows in everything else, then what does that mean about the will? It means the will now has had change brought to it as well. And as uh, other places in the Bible explain, 2 Corinthians 4 speaks of the new birth as the pulling away of a veil that was blinding the eyes and being able to see for the first time, being able to recognize and realize and comprehend what am I doing? Like, like the prodigal son who came to his senses that moment, to come to your senses and realize I'm a sinner that's on my way to hell and God has offered grace. Why have I not been running to this? God is awakening. God is giving realization. God is awakening faith. God is awakening desire. God is Opening the heart to respond like he did in Acts 16 to Lydia. Opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. God in the new birth gives new heart. and This affects the will. There's a will that precedes our will. That is working to direct us towards God. And so when you choose Jesus, you really did choose Jesus. But God was at work to lead us to this. The wind blows where it wishes. So, As a Christian now, where does that leave us right now? As a Christian, do I have free will? The answer is still no, but it is a greater liberty than what there once was. Um, The will is raised to a higher place, but it is not completely liberated. Adam and Eve had completely free will. In the fall there was the enslavement of the will. In the new birth, there is the liberating, but it is not to complete freedom. So if somebody asks you, do you believe we have free will? The first thing you need to ask is what do you mean by that? And then once you get the terms clarified, then you can discuss. But all of that helps us make sense of so many places in the Bible, by the way, because I know a lot of this is abstract and you might think of it as philosophical. It's really not philosophical, I don't think. It's it's in the Bible, but there are all kinds of places from the Bible we won't understand until we've had a time of thinking through this. So for instance, Philippians 2.13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's human responsibility, by the way. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In your salvation, it's God's will in you. In your sanctification, Christian, guess what? Same stuff is still going on. It wasn't like that was a one-time event and now God's hands off passive again. He's continuing. He's continuing to lead. His will is being accomplished in you. So when you die to a sin... The human responsibility side is, I mean, you know what it takes to die to sin. Oh, it's awful. You got to sweat. There are times you might bleed. You got to give things up, die to your pride in ways that just make you sick. To die to a sin, it's hard. And the Bible would say, look what God accomplished. Wait a second. No, no, no. His will preceded my will. Why did I even want that? Why did I want to sweat? Because the grace of God was at work. Um, th- th- we, we see this all through. I've told the illustration numerous times, one of David's mighty men who fought a, a, a ferocious battle. And by the time he was done swinging his sword, he had been gripping his sword for so long, his forearm cramped up and he had, to, he had to peel his hands back. And then the text says, so the Lord accomplished a great victory for Israel that day. Who wrote the book of Romans? A correct answer would be Paul. Another correct answer would be God. The best answer would be God moved Paul. This is how the world works. This is how God works in his people, in salvation and in other ways. God gets all the credit, all the glory, because ultimately it does not depend on man's will, but on God who has mercy. Now, why do we need to know this? And I'm winding down here. Why do we need to know this? Very briefly, look over to, you're in Romans chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 25. This is kind of a conclusion after he's explained all that is in 9 through 11. So that's not just sovereignty, but all the other things he's going to say as well. Verse 25, look what he says. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. We need to know this because we need to understand the world. Th- this, this is the story you're in. This is the world in which you live. You have to understand the world in which you live in order to do it well. Now, secondly, we will not be able to be humble in the way that God wants us to be humble so long as I believe my will made my salvation happen. There is something that happens in humility There is that that pride that is always wanting to swell up like a balloon that is in us. There is something that puts a little hole in that balloon and it begins to deflate when we learn it was not even ultimately my will that caused my salvation. And this then leads to a greater worship. There's a way that we will worship in a greater gratitude when we learn that ultimately it is the grace of God and he gets all of the credit. I could keep going like number four, the angels want you to badly see you didn't do this. God did. And to you who have not turned to Christ, do you see the word of God show that apart from Christ, if you have never turned to be saved, this is not about church attendance. This is not about do you pray or do good works? Have you received the salvation that Jesus purchased. Do you see that if you have not, you are enslaved to sin? The condition you are in is one of great danger. Run to Christ. This is the invitation flee to Christ. Run to Christ. Decide, I want to be saved. Do you sense God stirring your heart? Do you sense conviction of sin? Do you sense God saying, you need this, be saved? Do not resist that. Do not harden your hearts against the Lord. Run to Christ. Believe. Believe the gospel. Believe on Jesus. Pray and ask Him to save you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for you how you have revealed just the reality of the world. And I ask God that it will have its intended effect on us. God, we pray that you would humble us by the knowledge of this truth. I pray God that the the truth will sink deeply into our hearts and we'll comprehend the ramifications of this and that it lead to proper worship. It lead to a kind of gratitude that ought to come when we learn these truths. And then God, any in the room, that has not yet been saved, not yet begun to follow you. Lord, I pray that you will awaken them. Lord, I pray that you will bring about the new birth and that they will believe. Lord, we ask your blessing on us as we depart. We ask these things through the name of Christ, amen. The Lord bless you. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at True Vine, I-N-D, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.